So re really excited uh, this morning to have our academic year intern, Sarah Neff, preach for us uh, from the second uh, verse or the second part of the Lord's Prayer that we've been uh, diving in uh, this fall. Uh, I won't hazard you guys any um, on the spot, like um, spiritualizing of things that happened to me this morning uh, in my weakness. Um, you'll get that next week during the sermon, probably. Um, but uh, I, I do um, remember when I when I had my first church internship while I was in school. Um, I, it was in a rural Methodist church, and my uh, supervising pastor like oriented me for one week and then said, okay, you're gonna preach the next two weeks and I'm going to Germany for 14 days. Um, so this can't be harder than that, um, but um, mostly uh, having, having talked with Sarah and, and hearing her heart, uh, uh, that's, that's gonna come out in the sermon. Uh, I'm, I, I'm excited, I'm personally anticipating, and for you too. So let me pray for Sarah and then we'll have our, our scripture read this morning. Uh, Father, we thank you uh, for gathering us uh, together under your word and by your spirit. Open our uh, hearts to you and stop our ears that we might hear from your word and, um, and transform us by the renewing of our minds. Uh, Lord, uh, may um, the meditations of Sarah's hearts, um, Sarah's heart and our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Okay. Good morning. Can you guys hear me okay? Is that good? Ish. Yeah, great, awesome. Um, just as a word before I invite Nell to read our scripture this morning, um, our passage is still the Lord's Prayer. I haven't deviated from that, um, but as a resource and a joy to get to read um, kind of with that prayer, um, we've got a reading from Exodus 3 that I'd love to invite Nell to read. Moses was taking care of the flock for his father-in-law Jethro, Midian's priest. He led his flock out to the edge of the desert, and he came to God's mountain called Horeb. The Lord's messenger appeared to him in a flame of fire in the middle of a bush. Moses saw that the bush was in flames, but it didn't burn up. Then Moses said to himself, let me check out this amazing sight and find out why the bush isn't burning up. When the Lord saw that he was coming to look, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. Moses said, I'm here. Then the Lord said, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals because you're standing on holy ground. He continued, I'm the God of your father, Abraham's God, Isaac's God, and Jacob's God. And Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, 
I've clearly seen my people oppressed in Egypt. I've heard their cry of injustice because of their slave masters. I know about their pain. I've come down to rescue them from the Egyptians in order to take them out of that land and bring them to a good and broad land, a land that's full of milk and honey, a place where the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites all live. Now the Israelites' cries of injustice have reached me. I've seen just how much the Egyptians have oppressed them. So get going. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I to go to Pharaoh and to bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I'll be with you. And this will show you that I'm the one who sent you. After you bring the people out of Egypt, you'll come back here and worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, if I now come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they're going to ask me, what is this God's name? What am I supposed to say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. So say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God continued, Say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, Abraham's God, Isaac's God, and Jacob's God has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how all generations will remember me. The word of the Lord. That was um, really impressive work with the names of people groups. Well, I just want to say that I feel very, very lucky to get to be preaching this morning, especially because in an unplanned miracle of timing, my mom is here today. (laughs) Okay, here we go. Um, I want to start us off kind of strangely with um, a quote from Elie Wiesel, hope I'm saying that right, who is a Holocaust survivor and a very famous writer. I have this quote actually um, like taped up on my mirror so that when I groggily encounter myself in the morning, I read it every single day. In this quote, Wiesel is describing himself as um, a 13-year-old and as a deeply observant Jewish child. So this is what it says. He writes, by day I studied the Talmud, and by night I would run to the synagogue to weep over the destruction of the temple. It's honestly a pretty strange quote to have taped to your mirror. (laughs) It's a pretty far distance away from like, live, love, laugh, something like that. (laughs) And at first, I really wasn't sure why this image struck me so deeply and why I wanted to read it every day. But I have this image, this mental picture of Faisal as a teenage boy running through the streets of his town, um, beginning to, to tear up. You know that burning feeling when like tears are starting to come over this event that had happened hundreds and hundreds of years before that? Um, I I imagine him crying, running, trying somehow to like outrun the sadness or outdistance the sorrow. And then I imagine him arriving and sitting 
in the synagogue, kind of all like 13-year-old boy, like gangly, a um, little bit awkward, in the darkness of that synagogue, just weeping. Just this kid, and he's like letting the grief wash over him until he goes and walks home by himself so that he can wake up in like a few hours after that to go back and to study the scripture again. As I've read this quote over and over in the last few months, I think what makes me unable to let go of it is the fact that I don't really think of anything in my life the way that Vizel thought of the temple. I don't really have anything that affects me like that. In fact, I think that I have very little that can be desecrated for me because I have very little that I think of as actually holy. So our text for today, in continuation with the series that we're doing for the next few weeks, is the second line of the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be thy name. Um, When Chris first asked me about preaching today, I got very excited because this is an awesome phrase. Um, To be honest, I think I got mostly excited because I deeply love grammar. (laughs) And there is enough grammatical goodness in this one phrase to write at least like three Schoolhouse Rock songs. So if you're interested in helping me write those, talk to me after the service. My temptation, first thing I want to do is always to pin down these words like bugs and try and vivisect them to tear them apart to get at what's going on. I I think a a better starting place is to remember, um, as Chris reminded us last week, that these words aren't a creed, they're not a theological statement, they're first and they're foremost a prayer. Okay, in Matthew 6, as Chris talked talked about last week, Jesus is teaching. Jesus is laying this foundation for a crazy new movement called the kingdom of God on earth. And I like to imagine what it might have been like for the disciples to try and track with Jesus through the Sermon on the Mount. I imagine Jesus is going pretty fast. Actually, what I like to imagine is Jesus with a PowerPoint slide and clicker, and he's going through saying like, okay, everybody, um, I've come to fulfill the law. You are the light. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the pure in heart. Like, click, click, click. And I picture the disciples sitting there trying to take it all in, and they're thinking like, oh, no. Like, what have we gotten ourselves into? It might have felt like some sort of, like, theological whiplash for them as they try and understand and take in not just what Jesus is saying, but through that, they're trying to figure out who he is. Who is Jesus? So I imagine them taking this all in, and they're just looking for something concrete, like a handrail, a foothold, something that they can write home about and say, like, hey, mom, I found this teacher, and there's something really, really special about him. So all of this is spinning in their heads, and then Jesus slows everything down a little bit, and he says, okay, Now I'm going to teach you how to pray. And he starts with the words that we heard about last week. 
our Father who is in heaven. As Chris said last week, Jesus is doing more than inviting the disciples, um, teaching them how to talk to God. He's actually revealing himself as the Son of God. He's inviting this whole crowd to understand themselves as both invited and implicated in this brand new kingdom based on Jesus's sonship. And then Jesus continues on with, hallowed be thy name. Another translation puts this line as, uphold the holiness of your name. God, make your name more holy. Make the world right. Make all creation properly in awe of you. I really like the word hallowed or hallowed because it's abnormal enough to actually slow me down and make me pay attention. It, um, it reminds me that this world is porous, that it's open to a reality beyond what we can see or understand. Malcolm Geith, is that the right way to say that? I hope. The poet who wrote last week's sonnet puts it this way. There's something in the sound of the word hallow, a haunting sense of everything we've lost amidst the trite, the trivial, and the shallow where nothing lingers and nothing seems to last. What I love about this prayer, God uphold the holiness of your name, is that it functions a little bit like the door person for our godly play classrooms. It slows us down, stops us from rushing into the presence of God at 100 miles an hour and asks us, hey, hang on, are you ready? Are you ready to come in here? Actually, just a couple of weeks ago, a wise and very small human, when I asked her if she was ready to come in to the godly play classroom and to meet with God, looked up at me, um, like thought about it for a while, and then said, no. <laughs> this human left and came back a few minutes later and entered confidently into the room. And I don't know what changed for her between saying no and coming in, but that no has been pretty convicting for me as I've been preparing for this morning. It hits me similarly to Bizel's agony in the synagogue at the destruction of the temple. Um, both of these things convict me of living a life in which I collapse the holy into the mundane. I think that I can be guilty of hurrying in and out of spaces where I might meet with God and therefore guilty of collapsing my understanding of God into some version of like a cosmic buddy that I can fit in my schedule whenever I have time or I can call over whenever I can't reach something up high. Like, hey, can you come over here for a minute? Just help me get this thing out of the cupboard. I get pretty distracted with whatever the task is at hand, which ironically enough for me is studying theology, that I forget that in this new kingdom of God, Jesus is establishing, it's breaking in daily into our reality. I miss out when I miss opportunities to meet with God. And this is pretty tragic 
Because I think that encountering and proclaiming God's holiness is actually what we were made for. In Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4, there are these twin visions of God's throne room that reveal a glimpse of this eternal purpose. In both of these, we get a strange, kind of unsettling peak at something like what is already happening in heaven, just right underneath the humming and wrinkling of time and space as we understand them now. In Isaiah, the prophet sees all these seraphs attending the Lord, and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then in Revelation, these four really cool creatures with six wings sing day and night the same chorus. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. These creatures for all of eternity proclaim the holiness of the Lord. They have already started this eternal cycle of worship that we, when we allow ourselves to encounter and proclaim the holiness of God, when we pray, hallowed be thy name, that's what we're aligning ourselves with. When we proclaim the holiness of God's name, it's like we're hopping onto one of those moving walkways at the airport because we're joining that which is going to be our song for all of eternity. Our end is in the proclamation of God's name as holy. And we're just going to do a tiny grammar timeout, but what is really cool about this prayer, hallowed be thy name, is that it functions both as a proclamation, so like an alignment of our worship with this eternal drumbeat of praise that's already going on, and grammatically as a petition in which we ask God to make God's name holy, and then we orient ourselves in the world from that hope. Does that make sense? Two things, one phrase, very cool. In Jesus' kingdom, when we pray this, we're taking sides. We're asking that the holiness of God have a real effect on the world, on our neighborhood, on our classes, on our walk to the grocery store. We're saying, God, please reshape the world so that it properly sees you because that's the kingdom that we're signed up for. After Chris used, um, I think, three different like re-words last week, a useful word for us to think about what this prayer is doing is realignment. In proclaiming and petitioning God for the holiness of God's name, we are realigned. We're set right, reoriented towards our eternal purpose, which is worship. We're reoriented in a way that brings us to examine our lives now. It's a phrase that I think it searches us as we pray it. It asks us, am I ready to take on what it means for God's name to actually be holy on earth? And am I ready to encounter that holiness? What I really love about our wise young friend who turned back at the door of the godly play classroom is that she took really seriously the fact that the holiness of God is going to make demands of us, and it will certainly change us. In Exodus 3, we get a really great image of what happens when we encounter something holy. 
and why we should take really seriously a prayer for seeing God's name as holy. In this story, the story of Moses encountering God at the burning bush, we can trace four changes that might happen to someone who wanders onto holy ground and has themselves reoriented by God's holiness. Okay, the first thing an encounter with God's holiness does is to slow us down. I love the way that the version we read today puts it. Um, it says, God's messenger appeared in a bush that, oh, no, this is my summary. God's messenger appears in a bush that is on fiery, but on fire, but not burning up. Then Moses said to himself, let me check out this amazing sight and see why the bush isn't burning up. <laughs> Just gonna go check it out real fast. No big deal. This version doesn't give nearly enough credit to the fear that Moses might have felt, but I appreciate the way that it highlights a courage and a curiosity and a willingness to just set aside the flocks that he's supposed to be tending and to walk towards a giant open flame. I like to imagine myself in this scenario, like something big and on fire versus task at hand. And I know that for me, it is so much easier to use my busyness as an excuse not to encounter anything that feels scary to me. I do this often. I resonate with, um, with the religious leaders in the parable of the Good Samaritan who were so busy that they missed an opportunity to participate in God's in-breaking reality. Jesus models this type of slowness, this kind of way of paying attention when a huge crowd is pressing in on him on all sides, he stops to ask, hey, who touched me? He, like Moses, was moving slowly enough to notice and to turn aside and bear witness to a miracle of healing that just took place for a woman in that crowd. I, I wonder what it would look like if we went through the world with this type of flexibility, gentleness, and curiosity. I think encounters with the holiness of God are probably rarely convenient and rarely on our time frame, but they are also more important than anything else we could ever make time for. The next thing we learn about Moses's encounter with God's holiness is that God tells Moses to take off his sandals. God is lovingly calling Moses into nearness with him. But before Moses can speak with God, he has to take something off. He has to be stripped of something that is actually holding him back from worship. Eventually, Moses is stripped of a lot more than his sandals in this encounter. He's asked to give up his life plan, his retirement, his security. And I, I think this is one of the scariest things about intimacy with God. God might ask us to let go of anything for the sake of God's own holiness. It might be our pride, our privilege, our fear, our possessions, our time. Um, I think of Jesus over and over making hard demands on people who wanted to follow him that stripped them of things that were holding them back. Or I think of Psalm 24, 
which says, Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false. This is a hard psalm because I know that I don't have clean hands or a pure heart. And to be in God's presence is to have those things revealed. I think that's why I so often push against slowing down and actually being met by holiness. I, I become afraid of what might be brought up in me and then what I'm going to be asked to let go of. But I think a crucial part of being realigned towards what is right is you have to turn from somewhere else to give up whatever you were realigned or whatever you were aligned to before that. This giving up is tied to the third thing that we encounter when we encounter a holy God. For Moses, giving up his plan also meant taking up a new plan, a new task, a new lifelong purpose. His realignment with the holiness of God meant that he was now about to take on the dangerous, arduous, and beautiful task of leading his people out of slavery. I love what God says to him in our text. Now the Israelites' cries, cries of injustice have reached me. I've seen how much the Egyptians have oppressed them. So get going. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So get going. I love that and also kind of hate that because what part of what is terrifying about our God is that an encounter with God's holiness isn't just going to reveal what we need to let go of, but it's going to fill up our schedules with a life of freedom-making, justice-plowing. And sometimes that's going to look like wandering through the wilderness with thousands of complaining people following behind you. One theologian puts it this way. It says, our ethics is a byproduct of our worship. When we say God's name is holy, it tells us how we ought to live. So when we petition, God, uphold the holiness of your name, we're saying, yes, Lord. We are ready to be inconveniently slowed down, stripped of whatever is holding us back, and then to take up that which you have for us. And all of that is something really worth pausing at the door to think about. But then, and this is the last thing I want to pull from the Moses narrative, we are not told to pause at the door forever. We are invited into intimacy. For Moses, God reached towards him with the revelation of God's name. What should I call you, Moses asks, and God reveals a name. He just gives it as a gift. For any relationship, a name is the first gift that we can give each other that makes intimacy possible. There's no intimacy where there's no gift or revelation of a name. So for the Israelites who are asking, hey, who is this that's freeing us, that's fighting for us? God's name gave them a way to worship God correctly, a way of saying back to God who God is to say to all the earth, to all the other nations, this is our God, Yahweh, who loves us and who speaks with us. It gave them a way to address praise, 
to cry out in pain, to speak and to know that they were talking to someone who was committed to listening. This is the name that is holy. So when Moses walks out onto this hallowed ground and receives the gift of the name of God, that gift shifts worship for the people of God into a relationship. So zooming back to Galilee, as Jesus prays, this is the name that Jesus is connecting himself to. That name that's at the center of Old Testament worship in which the high priest would shake in fear and awe as he went into the Holy of Holies once a year to make a sacrifice for the sins of the people and to realign them to a life of God's ethical abundance. Jesus, by praying, hallowed be thy name, is aligning his new, wild, upside-down kingdom to the name that would soon be revealed as his own name. It wouldn't be so long after Jesus was praying this prayer on Galilee that Jesus would be ripping apart the temple curtain with a peace cry and be revealed as the high priest through whom we can enter with the exact confidence of someone small entering into a godly play classroom into the very throne room of God. It wouldn't be so long until Jesus would shift the temple for us from like kind of an apple store mentality where you have to make an appointment and then wade through a sea of smart, clean people to get to the genius bar at the back. He would shift to the locus of our own bodies and love and communion in his name. It wouldn't be long until the disciples would see that Jesus in all of his nearness and eating and sleeping is also the manifestation of God's hallowed name on earth. Until one of the disciples would proclaim my Lord and my God about Jesus' name. Until the rocks would cry out. Until the mouths of babes would proclaim. And in turn, until the earth would quake and split open and spit out dead bodies. I I think there's a tension here that is big enough for us to live our whole lives, to put our whole selves into. There's a tension between like the terror, the awe of the temple, the holiness over which Faisal wept, and kind of this all-consuming societal rhythm of worship, and the nearness of God that is available to us through Christ. Hallowed be thy name. I think this prayer holds those two magnets, those two poles together. But for now, back in Galilee, Jesus is just teaching his disciples to pray. He's inviting them to participate in the re-hallowing of the name of God in the world. It's a costly task. Jesus is asking them to check themselves at the door and to affirm their own desire to be struck down with awe anguished at the desecration of the sacred, fearful, amazed, open. He's inviting them to untrivialize their life and to unshallow their ethics. And as our sonnet said, in a world where nothing seems to linger and nothing seems to last, Jesus is inviting his disciples. He's inviting us 
to stake our allegiance on a holy name and to respond to that humming throb of eternity, holy, 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 that's already waking up as he proclaims the inauguration of his new kingdom. He's inviting them and us to stake a claim on himself, to make the connection, to write home to their mothers about him. He's beginning a new thing that's richly based in the old thing. And the starting place is being moved by the holiness of God. I think we're being invited here to first be stopped in our tracks and realigned towards God's godness. To courageously encounter a God who is ineffable, terrifying, surprising, uncontrollable, and intimate, and then to be changed in a way that's going to change our lives. God's kingdom on earth begins with the hallowedness of God's name. Jesus, in teaching us how to pray, invites us to align our hearts to the drumbeat, that deeper reality, and then to help bring about a kingdom charged with the grandeur of God in which God's holiness is evident everywhere. With that in mind, will you join me in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass. 